Welcome to IMTV Radio, bringing you the latest analysis from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the international Marxist tendency. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes, or visit www.socialist.net. Hello everyone, and welcome to this special podcast from IMTV. We're here at the International Marxist Tendencies World Congress, basking in the glory of the Italian Alps, but you'll have to take my word for it because we're just on audio. And being surrounded by Marxists, I thought I'd take the opportunity to pull aside Antonio Balmer and Tom Trottier from Socialist Revolution in the United States. Uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about something which is probably on the minds of a lot of people at the moment, and that's Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States. Um, People all over the world are looking at the States at the moment, probably have been since his uh, election in November 2016. Some in a certain amount of horror, I imagine, some with amusement, but probably most, if not all, with a certain amount of confusion. We had a demonstration in London, actually, protesting his visit to the UK a couple of weeks ago, which drew 500,000 people. Um, And I I suppose the question on everyone's minds at the moment is, well, what on earth is going on in the United States now? How did we get to this point? Um, How has American politics got to this point? Right, well, as you say, the whole world is, is watching this and wondering, you know, how, how Trump came to power, how somebody like this and, and what this represents. But really, what Trump represents is the personification of a political crisis that the U.S. ruling class is facing. Because in 2016, the candidate of the U.S. bourgeoisie did not win the election of, the, of, of their own system. Mm. You know, this Trump was not the representative that they had in mind. But what, what, what the, the real situation, the real story of 2016 is that the major parties and the major candidates and the politics as usual has lost its legitimacy you know in the eyes of millions of of people in the US millions of workers and youth have been looking for a change for a long time they wanted sanders they wanted the kind of change that that would you know give away to to fight against the billionaire class to fight for some kind of a real difference but obviously when that possibility was swallowed up by the machinery of the democratic party they they weren't willing to 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 stick with that party you know and i think that's the that's the uh the big takeaway from 2016 and it's ironic isn't it that voting against the establishment and the billionaire class many people ended up voting for a billionaire who's been closely associated with the establishment for for decades what that strikes me as an extremely contradictory kind of situation and where do you think that comes from beyond the the kind of the rage that you're seeing in, in the states at the moment? Well, I think that aside from turbulence, aside from instability, you can characterize this situation in the U.S. as in many countries right now as one of polarization. Mm. And the thing is that the crisis is undeniable. The fact that society is in some kind of an impasse is something that you feel every day. But you can interpret that fact. In, uh, in a left-wing direction or in a right-wing direction. And if you don't have, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if your outlet on the left is closed off or if you're, if you're not given an initiative on, in that direction for class struggle, then, you know, inevitably you're going to see the only other outlet that you have to fight against the status quo as, as uh, something that's at least better than, than what we've had up until this point. Mm. There were a lot of contradictions about that election. I mean, certainly um, 
the fact that Donald Trump uh, won the election should also be put next to the fact that he actually got less votes than Hillary Clinton. I mean, there was a substantial part of the population that voted for him, but were they really voting for him or they were voting against Hillary, which they were seeing as the establishment candidate? John, Donald Trump is definitely a member of the bourgeois, the ruling class in the United States, but he's kind of a, a part of a small minority of that class. So he's kind of like, um, um, you know, telling the rest of the establishment to go fly a kite, to, you know, mm. to, to use that term. And uh, there's, because of that anger, not having another place to go, there, if Bernie Sanders had run as an independent in 2016, we actually think there's a chance he could have won. And if he had not won, he at least would have built an opposition to, to whoever got elected, you know, so that's clear. But given, no, given the, 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 the uh, um, lack of, of choice, a lot of people, some people stayed home and they didn't vote. Some people voted for Trump and America's complicated electoral college system. It worked out that he ended up winning the election mm -hmm. in terms of electoral votes and not winning the election in terms of popular vote. Yeah, I, I think that something that isn't really covered outside of the States, I don't know how it is covered in the States, but certainly in Britain, it, 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 it seems, it, the way it's presented makes it seem utterly absurd that anyone could have seen Trump as the lesser evil. But since the election, I've seen interviews with people, for example, in the Rust Belt states of America, who've said precisely that, which shows, that shows just how deep a crisis can get that people consider someone Donald Trump, like Donald Trump to be the lesser evil. Um, it, it shows that there's something underlying the, the more superficial aspects of the situation that we tend to see. Yeah. But there were two points that the two of you raised um, that I want to come back on. The first one relates to polarisation, because in the media, and we've seen plenty of events to kind of reinforce this view, in the media it's often represented as uh, that Trump's election was a victory of the far right. Obviously we've seen talk of uh, a white lash, that his, is the, his victory was the product of, of the, the white working class or you know, white America back, uh, a backlash against things like the election of Barack Obama. But even further than that, people have seen the kind of support that Trump has got from the likes of the KKK and the, the so-called alt-right and are seeing in this a, a, a pretty scary shift. Sometimes they even use the word fascism in America. And what would you say to that given the, the polarization that you mentioned earlier? Uh, Antonio, you mentioned the, the polarization. I mean, I think that what we saw in Charlottesville in particular, which was kind of one of these turning points that got a lot of media attention and, and started bringing up this question of Donald Trump's links with the, the far right, what it really showed was that the balance of forces is one that's, that, that overwhelms the far right and that those forces of, you know, fascist organizations and and even these, these, these racist groups that are in part of that milieu are, are overwhelmingly outnumbered by, by a mood against, the, you know, you know, against, against those attacks. And the, the kind of mobilizations that took place, not only in Charlottesville, but across the country, mm. you know, in, w within hours actually against the far right um, is one indication. But also the, the, the sort of mobilizations that we've seen, you know, in the past year and a half since Trump came to power against his policies, against his attacks, you know, the, the repression on the border, the separation of families. I mean, a lot of what Trump's, his, his policies are, are directly provoking these, these movements. But uh, with every step, you know, you can see that the balance of forces is one in which, you know, the overwhelming majority is, is, uh, is against it. It's not a real... It's not a real threat of a, of a big force that has any chance of, you know, of growing or becoming an overwhelming power. Mm.
can, can I just make this yes. point? You have to remember um, on the question of people voting for Trump as a lesser evil that preceding Trump was eight years of the Democratic Party in the White House. And of those eight years, I believe they had control of the Senate for six of those eight years. And I think two of those, I know for, for at least two of those years, they had control of, of Congress. People had elected Barack Obama as president with under the slogan, change that we, that we believe in, right? And people were looking for all this change, all these reforms, and they didn't get it. Mm. Um, they, they got the same old government. They saw over those eight years, the rich continue to get richer. I mean, just one of the latest statistics, the top, the richest 10% in the United States, the richest 10% owns something like um, 80% of all the value of the stock market. Now, the stocks, of course, when you own stocks, that means you own companies, and the companies own the means of production. So that top 10% would represent the, you know, 1 or 2% would be the bourgeois and then the upper middle class. The rest of the population, the, the remaining stock is probably owned through their retirement accounts because in the United States you're forced to save for your own retirement and they buy a little share of stock. But you see, there's just all kinds of t statistics that show the gross inequality. The standard of living is being driven down. Um, so people were unsatisfied with the status quo. So within that context, I, I think, as, as Antonio was saying, I don't think that uh, people consciously were voting for Trump because of his connections with, with the far right. Mm. He, he himself is obviously just a demagogue. He's not a, a fascist. I mean, you know, there is no brown shirt organization in the United States of any size that's going to bust up union meetings or whatever. If they, if they dare do that, they would cr create a tremendous response against them. We saw in, in Boston, right, there was a, that Richard Spencer tried to be, he was overwhelmingly uh, uh, met with counter protests, you know. So um, I don't, I think it's um, uh, premature uh, and not accurate uh, to, to, you know, label Trump as a fascist or a neo-fascist. Yeah, and when I look at it, I kind of think why associate with the the idea of fascism is not simply you know pure racism or anything like that, but it, what you often see, for example, with the victory of fascism in, in Europe, is the effectively the annihilation of the working class as a political organised force, and yet in the states at the moment you see a guy who can't even get control of his own state apparatus provoking the working class and provoking and inspiring movements of hundreds of thousands of Actually, the Women's March was two million, wasn't it? Or, or perhaps even more. Um, he's obviously not doing that deliberately. It doesn't make him the leader of the working class, but it seems that actually, if anything, he's making the position of, uh, of the state and of the ruling class in America more precarious. That's probably why they hate him so much. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about is this question of the state, because it's, it, frankly, I find it very confusing when I'm seeing headlines about different people. Um, Robert Mueller, is it? who's leading this investigation to the, the Russia probe. All I'm hearing from the Democrats and Hillary Clinton, Clinton is that the Russians did it. What exactly did the Russians do? I, I mean, I don't want to get into too much detail on this, but what exactly is being alleged in terms of this connection with Putin and Russia? Yeah, well, Robert Mueller is, uh, yeah, he's a special uh, investigative prosecutor for the Justice Department. But I, what the, I think the allegation is that the, the, there was some um, internal emails in the Hillary Clinton campaign which basically exposed the, the truth of how they were stabbing Bernie Sanders in the back and how all the things they were doing to mess up his campaign. But some of those things were, were uh, taken from the campaign and given to WikiLeaks and put out in the campaign. And theoretically, the Hillary Clinton camp campaign says that that damaged their campaign. So they're blaming the Russians for that. And then I think they're also blaming the Russians for putting uh, various kinds of fake 
postings on fake on on Facebook to mm. to make it look fake there news. were the, yeah that there were more more people ag against her than really were or something like that. But I think I think it, it's kind of ridiculous to think that that's what was the decisive uh, feature of the of the U.S. elections. I, I I just can't take it seriously. So yeah, the, the to tell you the truth, the Hillary Clinton email and and all of that controversy, it's it's a tempest in a teapot, and it's not really the relevant issue. What's actually um, much more interesting is the clash between Trump and his own intelligence agencies like the CIA and the FBI, and even you're seeing clashes now with the Republican Congress and the FBI. And this is showing also that apparently there are divisions within these institutions. And this is really, I think, unique in American history. I mean, think about the heritage of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, always united, firmly one united institution under its leader. And now the thing is obviously broken open because there are different factions of the FBI that are with Trump there and the Republicans, there are other factions with the Democrats. And, and it's a unique situation in American history. I will point out that like Lenin did say that one of the, the factors of revolution is a split mm -hmm. in the ruling class. And certainly it's very, very interesting to see a split in institutions such as the FBI, the CIA, in, in these kinds mm. of institutions. So that's the states, that's the secret services. What does this mean for the, the two-party system, which has existed basically for as long as the United States has? I mean, both of the two parties, they're, they're both in an unprecedented crisis. And they're both in a crisis that they would characterize as a crisis of identity. You know, this is commonly covered that the, the Republicans have lost control of their own party. And meanwhile, the Democrats are, are, are they've never been this out of touch with their own base, if you can even say that there is a base of the Democratic Party. <laughs> and this, you know, precisely their, their campaign of, of uh, you know, focusing so much on, on the, the Russian investigation and everything, it doesn't help them, because it, it doesn't connect with anybody. You know, and, and everyone understands that this is an irrelevant thing that they're just using to try to to beat Trump with. But uh, but in but in reality, you know, what you have is that there's this desire for a, a leftward shift in society, and it, it's it's not finding uh, an echo in the leadership of the Democratic Party, but it is starting to find. You know, there there is a, a wing that wants to shift the party that wants to respond to that. Um, but you know, going going back to the question of the the elections, Trump's election, really, it's it's a it's a condemnation of of lesser evilism, mm -hmm. of this idea that you can keep playing which one is the lesser evil, not just because people couldn't decide, you know, who was the the lesser evil, but but because people are realizing that there is no difference and that there's no there's no escape. It's not a strategy for for any kind of an improvement, and so we're in a situation now where. You have unprecedented levels of discontent with both major parties, and I think that's one of the the, the primary features of, of the mm. situation that we're in in the U.S. And that's crazy because you'd assume, perhaps superficially, that with a president like Trump that everybody seems to hate, whoever's in opposition, especially if this is a mass organization that can you know contest elections of millions and millions of dollars of funding, would be sitting pretty and riding high in the polls. But from what I gather, they're not. And that their, their attempts to oppose or resist Trump since his election, his inauguration, have been, um, well, certainly unsuccessful. But I'm struggling to think of anything meaningful that they've even done. Obviously, they've, they've harped on about him being insane and uh, what's the, incapable of, unfit for the presidency. They've gone on about this Russia thing that it's treason. In other words, they're trying to hang some kind of legal maneuver 
um, to, to, uh, to, to get rid of him. That doesn't seem to have worked. Um, so what is the alternative? How, how do you get rid of Trump? Antonio, you mentioned a wing in the Democrats. It reminds me of Sanders, who since his um, unsuccessful run has been sort of trying to rehabilitate the Democrats. Has that borne any fruit? I mean, what, what we see is that there is a wing that wants to respond to, to the demands that are, that are getting, gaining traction. And that's why you do have, you know, you do have a, a string of electoral victories of these so-called progressive Democrats who at least are talking about you know, universal health care or free education or putting an end to the repression on the border. And that's something that the, the establishment of the Democratic Party is afraid of going in that direction because of what they might unleash. But what we saw is that those are the expressions, those, that's the beginning of an expression of, of this discontent that's really built up for years in the U.S. You know, I mean, going back to, to years before this, this shift in, in 2016, before the elections, you had the, the Occupy Wall Street movement, you had the Black Lives Matter in 2014, but those weren't talking about socialism and capitalism. They were expressing discontent. But the dialogue really was transformed in 2015 with Sanders talking about the billionaires, talking about socialism and and that it that put us on a stage in the in the political crisis in the US in the political situation mm. that, uh, that that can't be reversed now because people do want socialism and that's the big that's the you know after years of of arguing for the ABCs of socialism against the stream it was stunning to see that during the Sanders campaign it was as if it clicked with people people were ready for that and it's no longer an argument about, you know, about whether socialism is good or whether we got to get rid of capitalism. The more relevant question now is how are we going to do that? Mm. And that's that's a question that thousands of people are asking themselves in the U.S. OK, so you mentioned the election of progressives and obviously recently in the news there has been uh, headlines surrounding the election or the, the, the success in the Democratic primary in uh, New York, I can't remember the exact part of New York, hopefully you can tell me. The Bronx. In the yeah, Bronx yeah. of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from the Democratic Socialists of America, or the DSA. Um, so could you tell us, uh, for the uninitiated, could you tell us a bit more about Ocasio-Cortez's programme and, and the DSA, what it stands for, what it is really? Yeah, um, well, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez ran uh, an incredible campaign where she was able to defeat this incumbent Democrat, Joe Crowley, who has been in Congress uh, for a long time. And I think the way she did it was because of uh, the program that she ran on. Um, the program that she ran on was f fighting for free tuition for people going to college, uh, where tuition is very expensive in the United States. Free universal health care, something that doesn't exist in the United States. And she even uh, argued for a guaranteed job program, that everybody would be guaranteed a job. I think she was uh, advocating that people would get paid $15 an hour minimum wage. But that would certainly, a guaranteed job for everyone would be a step forward. So it's, it's no surprise that with a, a program like that, she was able to motivate people to come to uh, a primary election, which Trent generally and historically very few people come to vote there, so you have to be motivated to vote. She was able to motivate a number of people to, to uh, come and vote for, uh, for her. And, and she also did campaign as a working class candidate, someone who would represent the working class. And that's one of the major contradictions right now in the United States. 90% of the population is workers. 
90% of the, the population are people who work every day for the, for the boss, and the boss makes money off their labor, and yet they have no party to represent them. So there is a huge vacuum in the United States. Now, uh, Alexandria Cortez also calls herself a socialist, and she's a member of this group called Democratic Socialists of America. Democratic Socialists of America historically was a very small socialist group that worked primarily in the Democratic Party, trying to get the, the Democratic Party uh, to become, uh, I, I guess they, they would say, move it to the left, so to speak. Um, and that was basically their, the brand of socialism that they were advocating. But that, that organization has been completely transformed as a result of the Bernie Sanders campaign. In August of 2016, I believe the DSA had 6,000 members. Today, I think they have close to 46,000 members. That's a huge growth. And what happened there was, as Antonio was saying before, the Sanders campaign tapped into that vacuum that exists in the United States. But Sanders, in the end, didn't give it a place to go. He didn't provide an organized expression of that movement. So when he ended up um, supporting Hillary Clinton and not offering a way forward, people looked for something. And since the DSA was around, and it was actually probably, you could, I guess you could argue, the biggest socialist organization that existed in the United States, people uh, joined that, um, not necessarily for its past policies, but as a, as a way to express socialist ideas today. So that's, you know, that's what you're seeing as uh, um, the results of this campaign. And it's very, it's a, it's a very important marker, uh, you know, underlying what Antonio was saying before, that the word socialism is now more used and more positive and, and more popular in the United States. I should also add, even the term communism is becoming uh, more used and more popular. Mm -hmm. A number of young people in the United States, even members of DSA, are identifying themselves as communists, which is uh, probably the first time we've seen that since the early 70s. I mean, it's clear that Ocasio's win was was looked at, you know, this, this is totally unexpected, and it, it, it instantly also increased the profile nationally of the DSA. And for, you know, I think a large wing of the DSA, this, this meant this is a victory for this strategy. You know, what, what's happening right now, there's, there's thousands of socialists out there that are looking for more clarity on how we're going to achieve socialism. And the, the question of electoral strategy is a, is a big part of this debate that's raging across the U.S. And, you know, the, the way that we've intervened in this, in this debate, you know, since we launched Socialist Revolution magazine and website, and I think our, our main kind of rallying cry is that if we want to bring the movement onto the next stage, if we really want to have a serious fight for, you know, free education, for, you know, universal health care and, and a fight against the billionaire class, we can't do it with the Democratic Party. And the, the, the most, the single most pressing historical task facing the working class is the creation of its own party, of a, of a mass political alternative, of, a, of a, a vehicle that it can express, you know, this, this class struggle. Basically, so so from that perspective, you know, if, if we're talking strategy, we have to ask strategic toward what end? You know, Ocasio Cortez now is is it, you know is in line to be a member of Congress, and there's other people that have run similar campaigns, but you know, it's from the perspective of of, of what's needed: a, a mass socialist party, a, a mass socialist movement, to actually fight against, actually put up the kind of fight that's going to be required if we're going to actually win these major concessions. I mean, let's think about these things. This a federal jobs guarantee, if you're going to federally mandate that you have full employment in the country, you're talking about a major attack against the profits of the capitalist class. And that can only be done 
through a through you know a mass revolutionary struggle, which is why we argue for for socialist revolution, starting with you know the need for a class independent party, and this is something that maybe right now is abstract for a lot of socialists, but it's also something that you know that people are starting to draw these conclusions. They see Alexandria Cortez elected, and you know, it's not really the insurgency within the party that they expected. She's not really pulling the party to the left. You can already see her so she's being gonna, pulled. So she's going to be a congresswoman. That's right. Who supports free health care, jobs for all, $15 minimum wage, surrounded by hundreds, I don't know the exact number, of congressmen and women who think literally the opposite, and not just in the Republicans. I suppose that means that regardless of her personal characteristics, Right. Her, her, her views, her, her courage as a person or whatever, she's going to be under an enormous amount of pressure. Right, and she has a very radical program now compared to the mainstream of the Democrats, if you, if you want to make, if you, you know, in, in terms of a comparison. But she's going to come under immense pressure. Why? Because the Democratic Party is trying to retake Congress. They're trying to retake the House. And it's that kind of pressure that the rest of the party is going to effectively exert on her that's going to say, look, if you're too extreme, you know, let's let's come back to these issues later. For now, we need to moderate so that we can win a much broader section of society. And those arguments are already having an effect. You can already see, you know, that, that uh, she's she's not going in there to try and have a fight against the right-wing leadership of the party. She says, it's, this is not about an insurgency in the party. And that's what a lot of DSA members thought that it was. Right. So what... What concretely, then, do you think should be the strategy for DSA and people who are perhaps a little sceptical about the current um, strategy? I mean, I think it's absolutely possible for DSA to be a force that spearheads a very important initiative toward the creation of a mass socialist party, because it's true, it has influence, it has numbers, it clearly has, you know, we're, we're talking about an army of socialists that can knock on doors, make phone calls, do these campaigns. What if they were knocking on doors and having conversations about the need for a mass socialist party, and then you wouldn't have to moderate your policies. You know, this, this idea that, for instance, Ocasio-Cortez is very popular because she's championing this abolish ICE, abolish the, in, the, the immigration and customs enforcement. But abolishing one, you know, one, one wing of, of the, the state, one, one department that's going to enforce this immigration policy tells us nothing about the status of millions of, of undocumented workers, you know. If we had a, a, an independent socialist party that wasn't beholden to the, to the Democrats and ultimately to the capitalist class, you could put forward a much more bold program that says, let's fight for the immediate legalization of all undocumented workers. Let's fight for raising the wage, not to $15, but to $25 an hour. Let's fight for a reduction in the work week, you know. Um, and if, if, if we put forward a campaign on this basis, you can, you can only imagine, based on the successes that we're already seeing by talking about socialism, to some degree, you can already see what kind of success you would have if you put forward a much more bold, a much a, a revolutionary program. Can, can I just add? There's 12 U.S. There's 435 U.S. congressmen, by the way, nationally, but there's 12 just in New York City. If she had run independently uh, as an independent socialist on a socialist line, or at least as an independent but campaigned as a socialist, as a working class candidate, independently. It's true, she may not uh, uh, win the election in November and may not get elected to Congress. But if she did get elected under that basis, she doesn't owe anything to the Democratic Party. She has no discipline that she has to adhere to. Um, so it would have been better. 
to win under those circumstances. But even if she hadn't win, uh, hadn't won, and most likely, um, uh, you know, that would have been a harder thing for her to do in the general election. The thing is, is whatever um, um, a vote she would have got would have encouraged people to show that you can build an alternative to these two major parties, and 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 it would it would also uh, be a useful tool to raise the idea in the mind of the working class, which is the overwhelming majority of the United States, and and and, ra and raise that idea that we are the majority, we are a separate class, we have our own interests, and we should stop voting for the enemy class, which is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and that would have been a valuable political lesson, and it could it could be something that could be built on. There are elections every two years. This is not the last election forever, you know. Mm -hmm. This is and and it could be used to build. And she could do that in one district, and before you know it, we could do it in other districts in New York City, other districts in New York State, New Jersey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you could start to see how 46,000 members of DSA could really start to turn this around. Well, that's a really encouraging message, uh, but I suppose the, the last question that comes to mind is how will this um, relate to the fight against Trump? How can this defeat Trump? I think right now it's hard for people to imagine the impact that it will have on the political landscape when, when you actually have the emergence of a working class party. When you have the emergence of a mass socialist party, it's going to completely turn the tables not just on Trump and the group around him and the, and the Republican administration, it'll turn the tables on all of the, the political representatives of the capitalist class. It'll unleash the, the kind of fights that's not just to impeach Trump and put someone else at the head of this machine, but to totally begin to dismantle this entire machine. Then all these struggles, all these things that are radicalizing people, all these demands, you know, we can start to address them in a very real material way through an escalation of the class struggle that will end uh, ultimately in the socialist transformation of society. I think that's definitely in the cards in the U.S. now more than ever. Mm. If I can just add, you, you can't put out the fire with gasoline. And it, the, 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 Trump was created by the failure of the Democratic Party. So any idea that we're going to put, that, you, that the working class should put the Democrats back in power and that's going to solve anything is a very uh, misguided uh, policy. So I think the only way we can fight Trump and really defeat him is by getting at the roots of the problem. And the roots of the problem are capitalism. Either way, it sounds like there's going to be big changes in the United States uh, in the years to come. And I think that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. I'd first like to thank Antonio and Tom for coming and speaking to us today. I'd like to thank everybody listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to listen to or watch further material, please do subscribe to the podcast. And um, join us next time for the next episode of IMTV. Thank you for tuning in to IMTV Radio. Subscribe or download the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.